This is Matt Ridley, author of How Innovation Works, and you're listening to Books on Pod, and I've just had a really interesting conversation about my book. Thank you very much for interviewing me. Hello, readers. Catherine M. Gell is a business leader, entrepreneur, author, and speaker. She's the founder of the Institute for Political Innovation, CEO of Venn Innovations, and co-author of the book, The Politics Industry, How Political Innovation Can Break Partisan Gridlock and Save Our Democracy. Catherine, thank you for the time. How are you today? Trey, I'm great in the scheme of things. In the micro, my day is going quite fine, but like so many in the macro, Every day, we're concerned. No doubt about that, Catherine. And like you, I reject this binary decision we seem to have each election cycle, which is why I'm enamored with your focus on political innovation, to find a way to improve this system that continues to benefit few while failing many. Was there an epiphanous moment for you that led to a shift in your thinking here? Yeah, there absolutely was. You know, so many of us are dissatisfied with this binary with our only two choices, but we never think that it could ever be different. And really the epiphany for me went back to when I was in business. So I was running my food manufacturing company in Wisconsin. We really did make cheese. And while I was working on my company strategy, mostly I was focused on how I could sell more cheese, but it really begged these questions then. Why? If for me, for my business to do well, I needed to have good products and have have happy customers, and then that was how I was going to do well, why wasn't that the case in politics? Because essentially it became clear, oh, the players in the politics industry, Democrats and Republicans, keep doing well even when their customers, which are us, the citizens, right, have really never been more dissatisfied. So why does my industry and virtually every other business and industry work where you have to satisfy customers and politics seems to exist by a different set of rules. And essentially I ended up figuring out through this process that while we think we have a politician problem, we really have a political system problem, which is to say that the rules of the game in politics have created unhealthy competition where the players, the Democrats and the Republicans and the parties and the lobbyists and the pollsters and everybody in the business of politics gets to succeed regardless of whether their customers are happy. And so eventually, believe it or not, I sold my company in part to dedicate myself full time to this political innovation because I realized that we weren't going to get where we needed to go by hoping for that next mythical change candidate who was finally going to fix things. Because really, the system in Washington, D.C. eats candidates and elected officials for lunch, I would say. Yeah, what happens when a House rep or senator breaks from the party line to try and find a compromise? (laughs) So it rarely happens. And the reason it rarely happens is because that's not how you grow your career in politics. That's not even how you get reelected. Right now, the system in our jobs, your job, Trey, my job is if I do my job well, I keep my job, I get raises, I get promotions, et cetera. The way it works in politics is there's actually no connection between doing your job well as a congressperson and the likelihood that you're going to get reelected. In fact, 
there's almost a disconnection there, a disincentive, because if, for example, you break with your party because you want to find this solution in a bipartisan consensus fashion, you put yourself at great risk of losing your next party-controlled primary. I know this is going to run on November 3rd, which is our, you know, of course, most important election day. And I would never argue that November elections aren't important. But when we're talking about Congress, so we're not, let's not talk about the presidency for a moment. Let's talk about Congress. The most important election is rarely the one that everybody shows up for in November. It's the party primary because that's where the winner in 80% of the cases is actually chosen. And very few people really turn out for party primaries. And those that do tend to be more ideological. And they can really make it impossible for problem-solving politicians who work in a bipartisan fashion to keep their jobs because they lose their primary, even if they would win a general election, which means that every time you really want to do the right thing, and we have a lot of good and talented and passionate people in Congress, they come up with this choice of work for the solution, lose my job, toe the party line, let gridlock and dysfunction continue, keep my job. That's crazy design. This duopolistic system operates through elections and legislation in Congress. Why the focus on Congress here? You know, even though I sold my business and I'm now full-time in political change, I am still a business person at heart. And what I'm looking for all the time is where do we have the most power to make the most difference? So what I never wanted to do is have a really fascinating analysis about what's wrong and then recommend a series of changes, reforms, innovations that we could never make happen. And strategy, which we learned this in business, of course, strategy is about choosing what not to do. So we really want to focus on Congress because a, we have the power to make change there because Article One in the Constitution gives us the power to change the rules of how our Congress people are elected. And two, because Congress is, you know, the Article One branch of government. If we don't fix Congress, there is no single person we're going to be able to send to be the president that's going to be able to turn around that dysfunctional body and even get legislation to their desk that would represent sustainable bipartisan solutions to our biggest problems. So, you know, whenever there's a dysfunctional system, you have to say, what comes first, chicken and egg? And maybe you never have the answer of that. So then you just say, which one can I fix first? And that's what we've ended up doing in Washington, D.C., is saying, well, who's at fault first? Congress presidency Maybe we could argue, but where we have the power to change it is Congress. So let's go there. You talked a few answers ago about how American politics have forgotten about the customer. At its essence, healthy competition contends to better serve its customers' needs. When did American politics forget about the customer? So people in any industry, any job, over time are basically always trying to figure out how they can grow their own companies, how they can grow their revenues, their power, grow their number of jobs. And we've really been on this slow decline, this slow race to the bottom over decades as 
each party took individually, but a lot of times jointly, the next step of making a rule or a practice or developing a norm that gave them power in that moment and that eventually added up to a system that is completely disconnected from the customers it can serve. Because let me give you an example. What would happen is the the parties would work together to make a decision about fundraising rules that would benefit them. And they'll say, oh, we can give 800, over $850,000 to Republicans and to Democrats in any year, but only $5,400 to an independent candidate. And they make this decision to benefit themselves jointly. And over time, they add up to creating a complete obstacle to new competition. So it's not that three decades ago they said, let's screw up this whole system. Let's benefit ourselves at the expense of everybody else. It's just that each time they had a choice, they made it for their benefit. And it turned out that it constructed this completely dysfunctional and anti-competitive system. And now don't get me wrong, there are absolutely people in the system who know that they have done this and that this is how it works and they now benefit from that existing system and they're loath to change it. But for a lot of people, even those in the industry, particularly junior members of Congress, people who aren't in leadership, if we change these rules, their jobs actually get a lot better. That's what's interesting. Only a small number of people are benefiting from the existing system, but they're the ones with the most power. You know, it's interesting to think about perspective reforms in Congress, like term limits. It seems to make sense on the surface, but then you think about who it takes to make something like that happen. How realistic is implementing a two-term limit for Congress? Right. So I'll go back to that conversation I had. What we have to look at is where can we make a change that will change the likelihood Congress delivers outcomes in the public interest, you know, solves problems for us. And then also, what changes can we actually make? So term limits fails on both those counts, which is to say you can't have term limits for Congress without a constitutional amendment because it's unconstitutional. So there, Again, as a business person, I'm just done with that conversation because I don't want any of us to waste our time with something that we could debate over theoretically how helpful it would be or not. But since we can't make it happen, because right now, for the very reasons we have dysfunction, they're the same reasons we'd never pass any constitutional amendments, then it's not a good use of our time. So that's why we don't go that direction. But again, what's interesting, Trey, is when we did this work, it turns out that even if term limits were constitutional, they wouldn't be my first choice for how to make a difference. Because term limits, leaving the same rules of the game intact, essentially leaves you with the same behavior, just different faces playing the same dysfunctional game. You list five harmful consequences of this political industrial complex. Why is a lack of accountability among these consequences? How we hold people accountable or hold companies accountable is really through the threat of competition. So again, I'll go back to my company. I am making food products. Cheese sauce is one of my biggest products. And essentially, if I make good products, then I grow. And then if I don't, I'm held accountable for that by the forces of competition, which is to say, 
a competitor will come in and offer a different cheese sauce product that will be better. And then my customers who are dissatisfied with me will choose that competitor. And therefore I'll either be forced to do better or I'll simply cease to exist. And what we see in politics is even though we'll have incredible levels of voter dissatisfaction, sometimes as close to 90% of voters are dissatisfied with Congress and it's always above two thirds, we never see any new competition because there is no ability to put forward any challenge to Republicans and Democrats. And that's why there's no accountability. There's no accountability because the voter only has two choices. So the only thing that neither party has to do to win another election is deliver results. The only thing they have to do is to convince the average voter to choose them as the lesser of two evils. And that's what our system's been reduced to. And that's not the way to get the innovation in policy and get the agreement and get legislation that moves the country forward on any of our biggest problems. You've got to have incentives for results and then you have to have this threat of accountability, this threat of new competition if the parties don't get the job done. And whether or not people realize this, it's had a detrimental effect on American quality of life in the last 50 years. What does research show us about the erosion of quality of life in the U.S. versus other economically advanced countries? That's some fascinating research. So my co-author is Michael Porter from Harvard Business School, and he co-led a project called the Social Progress Index. And this was really the first time where there was a global research effort to compare the quality of life across countries. And it turns out that America is now near the bottom in areas that we once pioneered. So when we compare the United States to the 35 other countries in the OECD, I'll give you some facts. America is 31st in access to basic drinking water. We're 35th in the maternal mortality rate, 34th in equality of political power by socioeconomic group. We're 27th in life expectancy. It's hard to sort of come to grips with how different things are when you look at the data as to where things were 30 years ago. So as our political system has created higher and higher levels of dissatisfaction, these real world consequences have been accumulating because we're not making the investments that our, in a sense, competitor countries are making to improve the standard of living and the quality of life for Americans. And that's a real tragedy and a real departure from where we've been before. I often say that we're in a situation now where politics, our political system, has really become the preeminent barrier to virtually every important issue that the country needs to address. I was surprised to learn that citizens had to steady this democratic ship previously. What incited this change between 1890 and 1920, and how did the people regain control? Let's step back for a moment. So we have this constitution, and I'll sort of remind the listeners that the constitution fits in the pocket. That's why every once in a while you see a politician pulling out their pocket constitution. It's very short. And so 
so many of the rules, norms, and practices that create the incentives that drive the day-to-day behavior come from rules that have really just been made up outside of the Constitution. That's no problem. We have to figure out how we're going to do business and how we're going to legislate and have elections. But what we don't do is pay attention to those and the effects of those. And then every once in a while in our country's history, things get so bad that people start to look under that proverbial hood and say, what is going on here? And the last time that happened in in large measure was during the Gilded Age and then the ensuing progressive era, which is not dissimilar to today. In the Gilded Age, there was an enormous amount of inequality, a great deal of corporate power. There was a sense that the gains of the country were not divided equally and that things were out of control. And so people came together across ideology. This was not progressive movement as in sometimes we think of progressives as liberal today. This was progressive as in let's have progress. And some of their major changes were changes to the the rules of politics to change the incentives. So, for example, the progressive era got us direct vote for U.S. senators, whereas before they were selected by state legislatures. The progressive era got us party primaries, which were designed to take the decision of who would be on the ballot out of the, quote, smoke-filled back rooms. We finally went to secret ballots during the progressive era because we had before that party printed ballots, which made really a great opportunity for coercion and bribery. And we also got in the progressive era, about half the states created an opportunity for citizens to change rules directly. And that was the creation of ballot measures or ballot initiatives, which you can run in half the states if the citizens want to overrule or bypass their legislature to claim the power of government for themselves. And it also, there's one last thing in the progressive era, we changed the rules then. And that was the first time businesses couldn't give undisclosed, unlimited contributions to politicians. And now we're a hundred years later and we see that once again, the rules have gotten out of control and the benefits of the rules now just accrue to the political parties and everybody in the business of politics. And so we need to relook at them again and reset them so that the incentives are designed to solve problems, not just to serve partisans. In terms of solutions, your first focus is elections. Why and how should elections be done differently? We've got to do two things in elections. We have to create the connection between getting elected and getting results. And then we have to create a possibility for new competitors so that we can get accountability. So by changing the rules of the game of elections, we can get the best of what I would call free market politics, which is really this dynamic competition to solve problems for the American public. We talk about the change as a package called final five voting. I think the name itself sort of gets at healthy competition. And we are going to change two things. First of all, Let's get rid of the party-controlled primaries because those are the structures that push our congresspeople so far to the left and right that they don't have the freedom to work together once they're elected. So let's just get rid of them. And instead, we'll have one open single-ballot primary. 
And out of that primary, the top five finishers will automatically move on to the general election. So now instead of just one Democrat and one Republican and a few other people that you've never heard of until you get to the ballot box in November, you'll have five competitors coming out of the primary. They could be two Democrats, two Republicans, and a Green Party candidate. It could be uh, multiple independents and one Democrat and one Republican. You'll have five diverse views, uh, visions, innovations, and those five compete in a dynamic debate, essentially, between primary and general election. And then the second thing we need to do is go in on general election and we get to rank these candidates all the way from, oh, I love this candidate, my first choice, this is my favorite, down to, in a sense, our last choice, something like, over my dead body, do I want this candidate to win? And by ranking the candidates when we vote in November, that allows the opportunity for a series of instant runoffs. And I won't go into it in detail, but we've got a lot of great information on our website about how that works, and it's really quite simple. So you have a series of instant runoffs, you elect the candidate with the most appeal to the broadest number of voters, so you finally have true majority winners all the time, and you get rid of the reason why we never have new competition, because the real reason we never have new competition is because right now, almost all new competition is considered to be a spoiler or a wasted vote. So if you like someone else, Trey, other than the main Democrat and the main Republican, you'll generally get the message that you better not vote for them because you're just going to spoil the election for the candidate you like second best, the main Democrat or the main Republican. And by using ranked choice voting and instant runoffs, that problem completely goes away. So now final five voting creates a system where if you deliver results in the public interest, you're more likely to get reelected. And you know that if you don't deliver results in the public interest, you'll finally have some new competition. And that's just transformational. That's like being in our jobs and being told doing a great job is the way to move up. And if you don't do a great job, someone else will take your job. And none of those things exist in today's system, but with final five voting, they will exist. And that's how we will change the likelihood that Congress starts to solve our problems. I love all of that. How do we improve on the legislative process? What we talk about in our book is that we essentially have two machines, like machines that spit out behavior and outcomes as reliably as my food manufacturing equipment would make my cheese sauce. So the first is this elections machine that spits out the dysfunctional behavior we see. And then with final five voting, it would spit out good incentives. And we have the same problem in legislation. There's a machinery of how laws get made. And this machinery has been completely co-opted by the duopoly, which means it's much more about the rules of doing business in Congress and making laws are not anything like that old Schoolhouse Rock told people of my age was how it worked. I don't know if you know Schoolhouse Rock, this little guy who sang about how a bill becomes a law. And it's nothing like that. It's a convoluted and crazy process with virtually all of the power resting with the majority leader in the Senate and the Speaker of House in the House. And we need to change that machinery so that people in Congress actually have a practical way of working together. I think one way to look at it is 
in any organization that your listeners would work in right now, I'm sure that if at their company, they need to solve some big problem, there's one thing they probably don't do, which is bring everybody together and say, oh, we've got these huge problems to work on, but quickly before we get started, let's count off by twos and divide into warring teams, and then we'll get right to work. But effectively, that's how it is every day in Washington, DC. And it doesn't have to be that way. All of those rules of dividing into warring teams are just completely made up so we can make up some different ones. We can completely and totally reject every dysfunctional way that Congress has chosen to go about their business. And how we do that is by first changing the election rules so that when the people that are elected under these new rules of elections get to Congress, they'll vote to run their business under new rules that are prioritized for figuring out solutions and reaching agreement and innovative policy ideas and moving forward instead of the way the existing rules work. So we gotta do elections first because we the people can control the rules of the elections. And then once the people, the Congress people are elected, they can change the rules of making the laws. And finally, Catherine, what can individuals do to help make a difference? Yeah, Trey, that's my favorite question, because in the end, the only thing we want to do is see Congress start solving problems and moving the country forward. So we've got to get this stuff done. Article one in the Constitution says every state has the power over the rules of how people are elected to Congress. So each state can change these individually. So I think most of your listeners are in Texas. And you can have a bill in the Texas legislature, pass it, and the governor can sign it. How we do that is by starting a campaign. I started one. I co-founded it with another CEO in Wisconsin three years ago. We're three years in. We estimate it takes about six years to get through this process and get the buy-in of everybody that you need. But it's so much more doable than anybody thinks because... Here's the thing. People always say to me, oh, the legislature's never going to change that rule because that's what they got elected under. But what's interesting is even in this divided country a week before a divisive election, when you and I are talking, there's one thing that virtually everybody in the country agrees on, and that's that Congress is broken. Washington, D.C. is broken. So what we do is we go to our legislature and we say, hey, don't worry about the rules in the state right now. Let's worry about something where we all agree. Let's change the rules for Congress. And you can actually get bipartisan agreement from grass tops, grassroots, different ideologies across the state and put that pressure on the legislature. And because the states themselves feel directly the dysfunction and the damage that comes from that that affects their ability to get done in their states what they want to get done, they are also incented in certain ways to make that change. So what people need to do is go to our website, political-innovation.org, get in touch with us, and we can connect your listeners with other people in Texas, for example, who are interested in starting that campaign. 
if people don't want to start a campaign in their state, then they can also connect with us and they can support other campaigns that are happening around the country. They're getting started in multiple states across the country. It's a phenomenally exciting time, even in the midst of so much concern across the political spectrum over the current state of our politics. And that's political-innovation.org? Political-innovation.org. Yes, Trey. Thank you. Catherine M. Gell is a business leader, entrepreneur, author, and speaker. She's the founder of the Institute for Political Innovation, CEO of Vent Innovations, and co-author of the book, The Politics Industry, How Political Innovation Can Break Partisan Gridlock and Save Our Democracy. Catherine, thank you for the time today, and thank you for this important book. Thank you, Trey. It's been a pleasure to be with you. And thanks to you for listening today. A reminder that you can hear all of our episodes at booksonpod.com or by searching Books on Pod with Trey Elling wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod. Books on Pod.